want to thank Sally and Alessandra to give me the opportunity uh, to be here and to do this seminar. Uh, today we will talk about inflammaging and its role in aging and age-related diseases. And uh, we try to do this uh, within an evolutionary perspective. And at the end of this talk, I'd like to say something about uh, also about epigenetics that is very important for evolutionary medicines, for human adaptation, and in a lot of fields. Okay, let's start. Uh, as you can see from this graph, life expectancy has almost doubled in the last two centuries, at least in the westernized country. And as you can see, life expectancy was of 40 in 1800, and it increased to 80 years old in 2000s. So population aging and age-related diseases are um, important issue for medicine and uh, for also for public health. <coughs> Maybe from this talk you expected that uh, uh, the evolutionary thinking will help us to reply to some uh, apparently easy questions such as why do we age and what are the benefits of aging. But unfortunately, from an evolutionary point of view, these are uh, wrong questions and we have to, to first of all, to change uh, our perspective, shifting our focus to the disease that is aging to a trait, to a mechanism. This is fundamental uh, because we have to um, pose our attention to mechanisms that make our body vulnerable to a diseases and that confer susceptibility to disease. So not to a general, uh, uh, general pattern such as aging, but we have to focus on mechanism and on traits. This is fundamental. This is why we talk uh, about inflammation and inflammation, because inflammation and inflammation are traits, are mechanisms, so they can be subject of an evolutionary thinking. And this you can see an overview of uh, the presentation of today, and we start to, uh, talking of inflammation and inflammation, and then we will talk about the evolution of stress response. And then we will move our attention to immunosenescence and the remodeling theory of aging. And then we will see the uh, antagonist pleiotropy theory and the concept of immunological biography. And at the end of this talk, uh, I'd like to say something about epigenetics as a biological mechanism fundamental for human adaptation and fundamental for uh, also for the medicine, for medicine. Okay, let's start from uh, inflammation. Uh, as you can see, the term inflammation is constituted by two words. The first, uh, and this was this term was created uh, by Professor Franceschi in Bologna, and it is. Two, you can see two words. The first one is inflammation and the second one is aging. And it indicates a chronic low-grade inflammation 
that characterize aging and the major age-related diseases. So um, here I listed three main sources of inflammation. The first one, the first source of inflammation is the accumulation of dead cells and damaged organelles in humans. And during aging, uh, we can uh, we can observe uh, an, uh, an increase in the production of uh, these dead cells and then a reduced clearance. So there is an accumulation of this debris. And um, the second source of inflammaging are senescent cells. Mm -hmm. uh, these are cells that carry DNA damage and uh, they can secrete a variety of pro-inflammatory cytokine that alter the organism microenvironment. So this is the second source of inflammation. And the third one is the persistence of infections that accelerate immunosenescence. In a few slides we will see later the concept of immunosenescence, but now remember that the persistence of infection, such as uh, cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr viruses, can uh, can uh, be source of inflammation. So this is uh, fundamental. So inflammation is, uh, as you can see from this slide, is the common denominator of many age-related diseases such as Alzheimer and other forms of dementia, such as sarcopenia, cardiovascular diseases, type 2 diabetes, and some cancers. But uh, if age-related diseases are characterized by high level of pro-inflammatory molecules, centenarians who are people who lived more than uh, 100 years are characterized by high level of circulating anti-inflammatory molecules such as the one that you, that you saw. And in this figure you can see that healthy aging or unhealthy aging are determined by the balance between pro-inflammatory molecules and anti-inflammatory agents. And for example, let's look to the left part of this figure. You can see that an increase in pro-inflammatory agents could uh, um, confer a high resistance to infection diseases, in particularly, particularly in the first part of life. But this level can cause uh, the phenomenon of inflammation and inflammation, inflammation also in the last decades of life during aging. On the right part of this figure, uh, you can see that anti-inflammatory agents uh, can confer susceptibility to infection diseases in the first part of life, but in the second part of life, they can confer uh, a sort of anti-inflammatory states and then uh, can have a, a good impact and on longevity and on the first, second part of life. So longevity can be considered as the balance between inflammation and anti-inflammation, between this 
to uh, type of molecules. Okay? So longevity can be also seen as the balance between the advantage of having an appropriate immune response and the disadvantage of chronic, chronic inflammation during aging. This is an example uh, of balance. Uh, Fulvia is a, a super centenarian who lived in the north of Italy and uh, he, uh, she told us her secret of longevity and Fulvia said two things helped me, feeling of serenity and distress. People tell me that I do not have wrinkles and I reply that I don't hide miraculous creams but I smile often. My health distance every day and a short work. This is the, the idea of balance. <laughs> okay, let's go back to uh, inflammation, inflammation from an evolutionary point of view. Uh, in the medical field, inflammation is often considered as a pathological process that contributes to diseases. So, but from a biological point of view, inflammation has to be considered a fundamental process uh, that is crucial for survival and for, uh, for, uh, for an adaptive and protective response to damaging stressors. So it is very important to pose the attention to, the, to this phenomenon, the phenomenon of stress response. Here, yeah, there is a brief history of uh, the stress response and, and um, in the past, until 20 years ago, there was the idea that uh, uh, stressors uh, could uh, have an impact on the neuroendocrine system uh, through the five senses. And that the idea was that the neuroendocrine system was the only sensory organ and that the activation of the immune system was considered only the final target of the stress response. But in the last 20 years, uh, this idea uh, is correct, but was a little bit changed. And uh, some observation uh, support the idea that the immune system can be considered a sensory organ and that antigens uh, could be seen as some stressors. And so the, uh, the immune system could be considered uh, the first sensory organ that then activate the neuroendocrine system. And uh, the idea is that uh, immune system <coughs> could is a sensory organ that alert the organism from, uh, from stress, from stressors that come from the inside of the organism. So this is different from the previous, uh, uh, previous idea. So the stress response, response is uh, um, a mechanism that plays a fundamental role for the survival of species. And this is supported by the fact that it's a highly conserved from a phylogenetic point of view. And uh, in this figure, you can see that 
signal molecules central in the stress response, this one, are conserved during evolution and for millions of years. So these molecules are always the same during evolution, the signal molecules. But uh, during evolution, change the complexity, the complexity of these uh, of the um, of the uh, the complexity of the systems and the level of organization. <coughs> in fact, in the past, uh, we can observe single cells with immune and neuroendocrine properties. And during evolution, we observe a new level of organization in your in organs uh, that are anatomically separated, such as the hypothalamus, uh, the thymus the pituitary and adrenal glands, okay? So this is important to remember that signals, molecules, are uh, always the same during evolution and for millions of, e of years, they are considered. So these figures suggest a common evolutionary origin of the immune and neuroendocrine system and the increasing of complexity through evolution, it is likely to be linked to a host pathogen's coevolution. And we observe a new use of the old concerned molecules. The molecules are always the same. Okay? But why these concepts are important for medicines? Uh, the principle that a common pool of molecules play a key role in the mechanism of stress response and of the common evolutionary origin of the immune and the neuroendocrine system support the view that uh, natural, that is the innate immunity, inflammation and stress response can be considered as highly linked process. They are not separate processes but they are uh, highly linked processes. And this is very important because if you consider uh, different pathologies that have different etiology, with this view you can understand better this pathology despite their different etiology. This is uh, a bow-tie architecture that is a model that helps uh, in understanding uh, um, the importance of, ha of having a limited number of effector molecules that are highly conserved during evolution. That is the core of this architecture. Uh, this architecture that is typical of, uh, also of humans um, ensure that the high number of stimulus that you can see here is compressed, but at the same time have a high variety of responses. And the advantage of this architecture is to save on the energy costs. So this limited number of effective molecules have the advantage of save the energy costs. This is associated with the stimulation of the neuroendocrine and immune system, thereby reducing and minimizing the pool of mediators involved. And this process is clear that is uh, dependent on the environment uh, and the, cost, the context in which the body is, li the body is living. 
Uh, and therefore, this type of phenomenon is often referred to as eco-immunology because it depends on the environment that define the type of stimuli and depend on uh, the type of responses. But important to remember that this, uh, there is a limited number of effector molecules and this limited number are important to save on the energy cost of, uh, of the organism. All these systems seem to uh, work better when the organism is exposed uh, to a low uh, dose of stressors. And uh, this low dose um, of stressors is fundamental because it seems to stimulate the repair mechanism and seems to contribute to longevity. Uh, this probably because uh, um, it reduces one source of inflammation. This is uh, why probably it is so important. And this phenomenon takes the name of hormesis. Okay, let's move to the concept of immunosenescence. Um, during aging, we can observe that innate immunity, that is uh, the more ancestral from an evolutionary point of view, a type of immunity, is preserved during aging. But the adaptive immunity, that is the lymphocyte central immunity, that is the more recent one from an evolutionary point of view, seems to deteriorate during aging. So the progressive impairment of the immune system, uh, which occurs during aging is uh, called immunosenescence. And in particular, immunosenescence is characterized by the accumulation of clones of memory cells that fill the immunological space, while naive T cells are less represented. And uh, this can be, this can be uh, seen because there is a reduced in the response to new antigen and stressors. Uh, with, with this figure, I try to uh, explain better the, uh, the concept of filling the immunological space. Um, you can see that during aging, uh, there is a progressive accumulation of memory cells that are the blue one, and these tend to uh, reduce the proportion of uh, other immune cells, such as the naive cells that are the, uh, the green ones. And uh, this is important because uh, it means that the, the efficiency in responding to new stressor is, uh, uh, is reduced during aging. This is what mean with the term feeling the immunological space. Um, the remodeling theory of aging is a, a theory that tries to, uh, to collect all the observations on immunosenescence and uh, it said that the phenotype of aged subject results from the capability of the body 
of responding and adapting to the accumulation of unprepared macromolecular damages. And this is called, this process is called remodeling. And in this figure, we can understand better the meaning and internal air or external stressors activate the physiological defense and repair. And this constitutes a sort of adaptation. And if the modeling is successful and efficient, uh, the effect will be the longevity. But if this remodeling is not efficient or not uh, successful, the results will be the disease or, or the death. So from this view, it's clear that long-living individuals are the one that can, uh, better, um, that can better adapt to the stressors they encounter during their life. And let's move to the antagonistic biotropy theory that is very important in the aging field. And the aging is a remodeling process that occurs during life. And from an evolutionary point of view, aging could not have evolved through natural selection. But in the genome, there are some genes, for example, that have two different effects according to the period of life. For example, this, the same genes can have a beneficial effect in, uh, in early life, uh, but the same genes can have a deleterious effect in the post-reproductive period of life. So the same genes can have two different effects. Let's move to the mismatch theory. Um, this is the classical view in which human beings are characterized by traits that have been passed down through generation, and these are preserved by natural selection because of the adaptive function of the given environment. And however, uh, the given environment of the evolutionary period can be quite unlike the current environment. Uh, therefore, the trait that were at one time adapted in a certain environment are now mismatched to, to the environment that uh, the trait is currently presenting. And the example that you probably know from your studies is the example of taste. In particular, the example of the taste of uh, uh, food high in sugar and uh, high in fat. Okay? But for the field of aging, uh, this uh, mismatch can be observed at different level. Can be observed during the individual lifetimes because there could be a mismatch between the neutral, neutral condition and uh, the lifestyle inhabitude. For example, let's uh, think to centenarians. Probably centenarians experience, experienced a different environment uh, in their early life, uh, and this environment, that, that environment uh, was different from the environment that they experience now. And, uh, Mismatch is also the mismatch is also in the two, last two hundred years 
with the epidemiological transition in the West Country from the rural to industrialized cities. And this match could be also seen in the changes that occur from Paleolithic to Neolithic. And these are changes that uh, have an effect on your genetics. Because your genetics, uh, your genetics can be adapted to these changes that occur during history. So environmental and individual changes, changes experienced by an individual constitute a sort of biography of uh, each individual. And also inflammation and the stress response are processes that can be analyzed as a sum of all these factors. So inflammation is not a concept that is an absolute concept but depends on the environment. So this biography is also called immunological biography because the immune system records all the experience uh, you made in the, in, during life but also in the past. Uh, this is a different uh, figures, figure that, uh, to say the same concept, and you can see that during aging there are uh, different uh, changes that occur, and these changes have uh, mainly two dimensions. The first one is an ecological dimension that take into account the history and the geography of each individual. For example, 100 years uh, in Rome could be also different from 100 years in Moscow from an, from an environmental point of view and in Nairobi. So uh, the ecological dimension uh, tells us that some changes could be specific of the history and of the uh, and of the geography of each population. And the second dimension important in aging is the temporal dimension, because during life, each individual has a different way to adapt to, to stressors that they experience during life. Um, also, the genetic variability across populations is uh, very important because inflammaging has to be, must also be contextualized from a population point of view because the evolutionary history of each population may have shaped the ability to cope with a specific stressor such as infection agents or foods. And this is typical of the context and of the uh, specific environment. So, in the field of aging, it's very important also to consider uh, the genetic variability across populations. Now, maybe now you, you, uh, you ask about why these dynamics are so important. Um, uh, let's think of globalization and migration, uh, which we observe that people of different ancestry need to cope with the environment uh, that is different from those they were exposed before migration. Uh, so the concept of inflammation should be analyzed on the wall as a dynamic and integrated process with the final aim of pro promoting 
anti-aging of everyone. Okay, in this figure you can see that the concept of healthy aging and inflammation is the sum of many aspects that involve many interconnected processes. And what you need is a multidisciplinary approach. And in this figure you can see that there are different layers uh, that can help in the study of aging. One is the social level, also the disease network, and also the metabolic network. And inside each layer, there, is a, there are a lot of interconnected processes. For example, to study aging, you can also uh, you have to study age-related diseases. But if you consider only one aspect, uh, this will be the effect. Uh, this is a political discussion about human aging. Uh, and the first one said that something just not right, our air is clean, our water is pure, we all get plenty of exercise, everything we eat is organic and free range, and yet nobody lives past 30. <laughs> this is the idea, uh, because if we take into account only one aspect, uh, this, this is the type of discussion we, that we have. But let's try to um, translate our evolutionary reasoning, our evolutionary thinking into something to more concrete and uh, um, that is more important for the identification in medicine. And so the identification of the initial sources of inflammation paves the way for a variety of possible interventions that try to eliminate and neutralize the excessive inflammatory stimuli, trying to slow down the rate of inflammation. And one type of this intervention is the nutritional intervention. Here I reported only one study in which authors observed that healthy diet can counteract a strong genetic risk for an important age-related disease, that is the type 2 diabetes, and also stroke. In fact, in this study, uh, authors uh, take into account uh, this gene, TCF7L2 genes, and uh, this is important because uh, if you have GT genotypes, you have a higher risk of cardiovascular diseases and in particular of strokes. But the author uh, observed that uh, um, a group of people with these genotypes that uh, follow a Mediterranean diet neutralize completely the risk of stroke in comparison to uh, individuals carry TT genotypes who follow a controlled diet. So this is very important because it means that uh, even if you have uh, um, a genetic background that confer you a high level of susceptibility uh, to disease, with diet you can, uh, you can change this, uh, this type of susceptibility. And then there are other studies that, uh, in which um, we observe that 
the, these foods, for example, can uh, reduce the level of inflammaging, such as the consumption of nuts, of curcumin, and the uh, fiber consumption. Okay. This is uh, another uh, figure that uh, tells you that with healthy nutrition, physical exercise, and uh, there are some experiments uh, regarding also a modulation of the gut microbiome and the elimination of senescent cell, you can modulate uh, uh, your the inflammation, your state of inflammation. And the beneficial effect will be uh, the, um, the to avoid or postpone age related the age related disease onset. Now I'd like to say something about epigenetics and in particular because epigenetics has brought profound conceptual novelties in life science in these last three decades. And epigenetics is a biological mechanism that can, uh, can be influenced by culture. And uh, so uh, with epigenetic, uh, we can say that there are no basis for the dichotomous view of bio biology versus society or biology versus culture. Because epigenetic is a biological mechanism that can change and can be modulated according to uh, social aspects and, and according to environmental factors. In particular, I study uh, DNA methylation, that is one type of uh, epigenetic mechanism, and it was the first epigenetic modification discovered. And uh, DNA methylation consists in the addition of a methyl group in a cytosine that in uh, DNA are located near ganine. So DNA methylation occurs in this position of the genomes, usually in humans. And in this graph, you can see the number of publications with the term epigenetic or epigenetics in their title. As you can see, in the last 20 years, there is a, a high increase in the publication on epigenetics. And a lot of them regards medicine and also pathology and diseases. Okay, in the genome, there are some regions whose uh, DNA methylation can change or not change, it depends. In the genome, you can observe that some regions do not, the methylation level of some region, regions does not change naturally during life. And this is the example of the regions uh, that determine the identity of the cells and the cell type. Uh, but there are other regions in the genome that uh, whose methylation level change between, if you look at uh, the variability between individuals, in particular according to the genetic background. This means that, for example, uh, I'm different from you, uh, from a genetic point of view, and uh, this difference in our genetics can shape the difference in, in the methylation profiles. And then in the genome, there are other regions that can change according to environmental stimuli and factor. So this is very important because it depends uh, 
from the type of study you are doing, if you are interested in, in this uh, uh, study, maybe you have to focus on that region of the genomes that change according to environment. Okay? But uh, here I listed three main region, reasons to study epigenetic modification. The first one is that changes in DNA methylation profile can be associated to change in gene expression and then in change to phenotypic uh, tra traits. And this can be both physiological or also pathological changes that can occur uh, in individual, but also if you look to populations. Uh, then, DNA methylation is strongly affected by genetics and by the environment and there are a lot of studies that identify environmental factors such as uh, pollutants, drug, physical activity, uh, smoke also, uh, that can alter the methylation profile of an individual. So, um, DNA methylation is a covalent modification of the DNA and uh, it is Please remember that it's a covalent. Covalent means that it's a reversible mechanism. So if you acquire in your life one methylation uh, profile, you can change it uh, with some environmental uh, intervention. This is very important. In fact, for example, if you study genetics, uh, genetics can only be studied. You can change your genetic. And, uh, if you instead study epigenetics and also in particular DNA methylation, it, you can modulate it. So it's very, it's very important. And this has a lot of implications also for medicine. This is very important. Okay, these are uh, three main uh, topics that we usually study in Bologna regarding the epigenetic variability. And we study methylation, DNA methylation level as biomarker of aging. And in particular, we look uh, in the genome trying to identify uh, the region whose <coughs> methylation level vary according to the aging process. And then we study uh, molecular mechanism involved in aging, uh, trying to uh, look to particular model. Uh, we try to understand if the epigenetic variability is a molecular mechanism involved in aging. And then we study epigenetic variability uh, between population uh, with an evolutionary approach. <laughs> Uh, recent study uh, observed that uh, the link between uh, epigenetics and evolution, and in particular, this study is probably published three years ago, argued that when natural selection acts on pure epigenetic variation in addition to genetic variation, populations adapt faster, and adaptive phenotypes uh, can arise before any genetic changes. Following this idea, uh, we recently wrote a review article, article that, where we proposed this figure. Uh, here you can see 
the intensity of the stimulus at the time, and you can see that epigenetic adaptation are important are important when a new stimuli arises and before a genetic adaptation, or epigenetic changes are also important when the intensity of the stimulus is not constant over time. Uh, in the same review, we also uh, propose uh, this second figure uh, that uh, uh, lists all the type of human adaptation. And here you can see that the adaptation can occur from hours to million of years. And uh, you can have a cultural adaptation, also biological adaptation. And uh, epigenetics can occur at uh, many different levels. And uh, you can observe the epigenetic changes in an individual, but also you can observe epigenetic changes looking at populations. So, um, you can see that epigenetics can be observed at any level. Then I uh, briefly report some uh, examples of epigenetic variability at each level. Uh, let's start from population, epigenetic uh, variability in population. And this study, this is a theoretical study that uh, suggests that, that epigenetic adaptive epigenetic mutation may allow population to respond to environmental uh, change even in the absence of genetic variation. And this is uh, very important um, because epigenetic change can be considered as a mechanism important to buy time before a genetic adaptation. A very important study, one of the first one in population epigenetics, it is very recent and consider epigenome-wide data from three human populations. Uh, so authors look at the methylation profile in all the genomes, considering the population different, different for ethnicity, and they consider African American. Uh, Asian Americans and Caucasian Americans. Caucasian, uh, I think that uh, they mm, they refer to American with European ancestry. And this study identified a core of 439 CPG sites that distinguish, whose methylation level distinguish the th three populations. And this pattern is associated with gene expression and transcription binding site. And this is a representation of the results. Here you can see all African American individuals with pink color, all Caucasian American, and with the yellow, all Han Chinese American. And these are the methylation profile. And what we observe at, at is that considering 439 CPG, we have different pattern of variability between populations. Uh, then this paper showed that local selective pressures such as pathogen could shape epigenetic variation in genes involved in immune or also xenobiotic response. And the authors observed that 
two-thirds of <coughs> hypervariable CPG size were associated to the genetic background, and that one-third of these CPG vary according to population were not linked with genetic variance, suggesting that epigenetics can vary variability uh, can also occur independently from the genetic background. And this is very important. Uh, this is very important. Uh, this is a study that we performed in Italy looking at methylation variability uh, in Italy, considering people uh, from north of Italy, from the center of Italy, and from the south of Italy. And uh, <coughs> we look at methylation level of, uh, of the whole genome methylation level. And uh, then we identify the DMR that are the differentially methylated regions uh, in the genomes. And then we look to uh, pathway and gene ontology and enrichment analysis. And we observe that looking at DNA methylation differences between the north and, and, the, and the south, we observe the enrichment of DMR located in genes involved in cellular nitrogen compound metabolic process. Then, by comparing DNA methylation variability of the center of individual from the center with the methylation profile of individual from the south, we observe an enrichment of uh, DMRs located in genes involved in nitrogen compound transport. And this is very interesting because nitrogen is object of research for environmental issues and the major source of nitrogen compounds are linked to agriculture and to the industrial wastes. And um, this is also uh, interesting because in Italy we have different uh, type of uh, uh, way of subsistence. The south is more characterized by agriculture and the north is more, more characterized by uh, a lot of industry. And there are also, from literature, there are also a lot of studies that link the DNA methylation variability uh, with the chemical exposure. And uh, that this is very interesting because uh, there are uh, a lot of genes that can uh, be alterated and can be linked to, to pathology. Then, looking at the methylation variability in Italy, we also uh, identify genes that are linked to pathogens response. And this is suggested that pathogens, bacteria, and microbial variability across our peninsula constitute one of the main selective pressure that shape the epigenetic profile in Italy. Um, this is type of study are important because elucidating natural methylation variation across population constitute a key perspective to identify selective pressure that could determine uh, complex physiological and pathological traits. Uh, the second type, the second, the second level of human adaptation is the one that occurs 
during life. And here I reported an example taken from history. Um, here we observe the, there are some evidence for the effect of maternal malnutrition of offsprings comes from historical court of uh, Dutch individual whose mother were exposed uh, to famine during the war time. And in, the, in this period, Germans blocked food uh, to the Dutch in the winter of 1944, and the calorie consumption in this period dropped from 2,000 to 500 per day. And uh, offspring of women exposed uh, during early pregnancy were more likely to develop uh, the metabolic syndrome in adulthood comparing to offspring of women pregnant before or after the famine. <coughs> the author studied epigenetic changes and the epigenetic analysis uh, in, in performed in this individual show differential methylation in several genes involved in growth and also in metabolic control. Um, and in particular, they observed an hypomethylation at the promoter of IGF2 genes, that is, gene that is a maternally imprinted genes implicated in growth and development. So this study uh, makes the link between maternal malnutrition, uh, pathology in adulthood, and the epigenetic mechanism. Uh, so researchers increasingly focus on um, how a range of factors during pregnancy and during gestational development can impact adult health. And all these factors uh, were um, under the name of early events, for example, malnutrition and late onset diseases. And the idea is that here there is epigenetics, epigenetic variability and epigenetic mechanism. This is uh, the last example uh, of uh, epigenetic variability that occur <coughs> in a uh, restricted time, that is uh, methylation variability that occurs after physical exercise. In this study, we, uh, the authors uh, observed the important role of epigenetics in gene regulation and disease development. Um, they performed a genome-wide study and look at uh, um, the environmental factors that potentially change metabolism through epigenetic modification. And they examine uh, the effect of six-month uh, exercise intervention. And they observe that only six months of intervention can alter methylation pattern as well as gene expression in the human adipose tissue. So methylation variability can occur also very fast because six months are a very uh, small period. Okay, these uh, are all the people that uh, work uh, in Bologna to this experiment. And in particular, there are evolutionary biology, there are people involved, involved in the, uh, medicines and also history and culture. Uh, thank you for your attention.